Chapter Twelve of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by the Grumpy Old Squid. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter Twelve: A Night at Sea. Glencore's chamber presented a scene of confusion and dismay as Upton entered. The sick man had torn off the bandage from his temples, and so roughly as to reopen the half-closed artery and renew the bleeding. Not alone the bedclothes and the curtains, but the faces of the attendants around him were stained with blood, which seemed the more ghastly from contrast with their pallid cheeks. They moved hurriedly to and fro, scarcely remembering what they were in search of, and evidently deeming his state of the greatest peril. Trainer, the only one whose faculties were unshaken by the shock, sat quietly beside the bed, his fingers firmly compressed upon the orifice of the vessel, while with the other hand he motioned to them to keep silence. Glencore lay with eyes closed, breathing long and labored inspirations, and at times convulsed by a slight shivering. His face, and even his lips, were bloodless, and his eyelids of a pale, livid hue. So terribly like the approach of death was his whole appearance, that Upton whispered in the doctor's ear, Is it over? Is he dying? No, Upton, said Glencore, for with the acute hearing of intense nervousness, he had caught the words. It is not so easy to die. There now, no more talking, no discoursing. Easy and quiet is now the word. Bind it up and leave me. Leave me with him. And Glencore pointed to Upton. I daren't move out of this spot, said Billy, addressing Upton. You'd have the blood coming out per saltum if I took away my finger. You must be patient, Glencore, said Upton gently. You know I'm always ready when you want me. And you'll not leave this? You'll not desert me? cried the other eagerly. Certainly not. I have no thought of going away. There now. Old your prat. Both ye. Or, by my conscience... I'll not take the responsibility upon me. I will not, said Billy angrily. Tis just a disgrace and a shame that you haven't more discretion. Glencore's lips moved with a feeble attempt at a smile, and in his faint voice he said, We must obey the doctor, Upton, but don't leave me. Upton moved a chair to the bedside and sat down without a word. You think an artery is like a canal, with a lock-gate to it, I believe, said Billy, in a low, grumbling voice to Upton, and you forget all its vermicular motion, as old Fabricius called it, and that it is only by a coagulum, a kind of barrier, like a mud breakwater, that it can be plugged. Be off, out of that, ye spalbeans, be off, every one of yez, and leave us tranquil and peaceable. This summary command was directed to the various servants, who were still moving about the room in imaginary occupation. Room was at last cleared of all save Upton and Billy, who sat by the bedside, his hand still resting on the sick man's forehead. Soothed by the stillness and reduced by the loss of blood, Glencore sank into a quiet sleep, breathing softly and gently as a child. Look at him now, whispered Billy to Upton and you'll see what philosophy there is in ascribing to the heart the source of all our emotions. He lies there, easy and comfortable, just because the great bellows is working smoothly and quietly. They talk about the brain, and the spinal nerves, and the solar plexus, 
but give a man a wake, washy circulation, and what is he? He's just like a chap with the finest intentions in the world, but not a sixpence in his pocket to carry them out. A fine, well-regulated, steady-beaten heart is like a credit on the bank. You draw on it, and your draft isn't dishonored. What was it brought on this attack? asked Upton in a whisper. A shindy he had with the boy. I wasn't here. There was nobody by. But when I met Master Charles on the stairs, he flew past me like lightning, and I just saw by a glimpse that something was wrong. He rushed out with his head bare and his coat all open, and it sleetened terribly. Down he went towards the loch, at full speed, and never minded all my calling after him. Has he returned? asked Upton. Not as I know, sir. We were too much taken up with the Lord to ask for him. I'll just step down and see, said Sir Horace, who arose and left the room on tiptoe. To Upton's inquiry, all made the same answer. None had seen the young Lord. None could give any clue as to whither he had gone. Sir Horace at once hastened to Harcourt's room, and, after some vigorous shakes, succeeded in awakening the colonel, and by dint of various repetitions at last put him in possession of all that had occurred. "'We must look after the lad,' cried Harcourt, springing from his bed and dressing with all haste. "'He is a rash, hot-headed fellow, but even if it were nothing else, he might get his death in such a night as this.' The wind dashed wildly against the window-panes as he spoke, and the old timbers of the frame rattled fearfully. "'Do you remain here, Upton. I'll go in search of the boy. Take care Glencore hears nothing of his absence, and with a promptitude that bespoke the man of action, Harcourt descended the stairs and set out. The night was pitch dark. Sweeping gusts of wind bore the rain along in torrents, and the thunder rolled incessantly. Its clamor increased by the loud beating of the waves as they broke upon the rocks. Upton had repeated to Harcourt that Billy saw the boy going towards the seashore, and in this direction he now followed. His frequent excursions had familiarized him with the place, so that even at night Harcourt found no difficulty in detecting the path and keeping it. About half an hour's brisk walking brought him to the side of the loch, and the narrow flight of steps cut in the rock which descended to the little boat quay. Here he halted and called out the boy's name several times. The sea, however, was running mountains high, and an immense drift sweeping over the rocks fell in sheets of scattered foam beyond them, so that Harcourt's voice was drowned by the uproar. A small shieling under the shelter of the rock formed the home of a boatman, and at the crazy door of this humble cot, Harcourt now knocked violently. The man answered the summons at once, assuring him that he had not heard or seen any one since the night closed in, adding at the same time that in such a tempest a boat's crew might have landed without his knowing it. To be sure, continued he after a pause, I heard a chain rattling on the rock soon after I went to bed, and I'll just step down and see if the yawl is all right. Scarcely had he left the spot when his voice was heard calling out from below, She's gone. The yawl is gone. The lock is broke with a stone, and she's away. How could this be? No boat could live in such a sea, cried Harcourt eagerly. She could go out fast enough, sir. The wind is northeast due. But how long she'll keep the say is another matter. Then he'll be lost, cried Harcourt wildly. Who, sir? Who is it? asked the man. 
your master's son cried he wringing his hands in anguish oh murther murther screamed the boatman we'll never see him again tis out to say into the wild ocean he'll be blown is there no shelter no spot he could make for barren the islands there's not a spot between this and america but he could make the islands you are sure of that if the boat was able to live through the say but sure i know him well he'll never take in a reef or sail but sit there with the helm hard up just never carin what came of him oh musha musha what drove him out such a night as this come it's no time for lamenting my man get the launch ready and let us follow him are you afraid afraid replied the man with a touch of scorn in his voice fay it's little fear troubles me but maybe you won't like to be in her yourself when she's once out i've none belonging to me father mother chick or child but you may have many a one that's near to you my ties are perhaps as light as your own said harcourt come now be alive i'll put ten gold guineas in your hand if you can overtake him i'd rather see his face than have two hundred said the man as springing into the boat he began to haul out the tackle from under that low half-deck and prepare for sea is your honor used to a boat or ought i to get another man with me asked the sailor trust me my good fellow i have had more sailing than yourself and in more treacherous seas too said harcourt who throwing off his cloak proceeded to help the other with an address that bespoke a practised hand the wind blew strongly off the shore so that scarcely was the foresail spread than the boat began to move rapidly through the water dashing the sea over her bows and plunging wildly through the waves give me a hand now with the halyard said the boatman and when the mainsail is set you'll see how she'll dance over the top of the waves and never wet us she's too light in the water if anything said harcourt as the boat bounded buoyantly under the increased press of canvas your honor's right she'd do better with half a ton of iron in her stand by sir always with the peak halyards get the sail aloft in when i give you the word leave the tiller to me my man said harcourt taking it as he spoke you'll soon see that i am no new hand at the work she's doing it well said the man keep her up keep her up there's a spit of land runs out here in a few minutes more we'll have say room enough the heavier roll of the waves and the increased force of the wind soon showed that they had gained the open sea while the atmosphere relieved of the dark shadows of the mountain seemed lighter and thinner than inshore we're to make for the islands you say sir yes what distance are they off about eighteen miles two hours if the wind lasts and we can bear it and could the yawl stand this said harcourt as a heavy sea struck the bow and came in a cataract over them better than ourselves if she was manned luff luff that's it and as the boat turned up to wind sheets of spray and foam flew over her master charles hasn't his equal for steering if he wasn't alone keep her there now steady sir here's a squall coming cried harcourt i hear it hissing down went the peak but scarcely in time for the wind catching the sail laid the boat gunwale under after a struggle she righted but with nearly one-third of her filled with water i take in a reef or two reefs said the man but if she couldn't rise to the say she'll fill and go down we must carry on at all events so say i it's no time to shorten sail with such a sea running the boat now flew through the water the sea itself impelling her as with every sudden gust the waves struck the stern 
She's a brave craft, said Harcourt, as she rose lightly over the great waves and plunged down again into the trough of the sea. But if we ever get to land again, I'll have combings round her to keep her drier. Here it comes. Here it comes, sir. Nor were the words well out, when like a thunderclap the wind struck the sail and bent the mast over like a whip. For an instant it seemed as if she were going down by the prow, but she righted again, and shivering in every plank, held on her way. That's as much as she could do, said the sailor, and I would not like to ax her to do more. I agree with you, said Harcourt, secretly stealing his feet back again into his shoes, which he had just kicked off. It's freshening. It is every minute, said the man, and I'm not sure that we could make the islands if it lasts. Well, what then? There's nothing for it but to be blown out to say, said he calmly, as having filled his tobacco pipe, he struck a light and began to smoke. The very thing I was wishing for, said Harcourt touching his cigar to the bright ashes. How she labors. Do you think she can stand this? She can if it's no worse, sir, but it looks heavier weather outside. As well as I can see, it's only beginning. Harcourt listened with a species of admiration to the calm and measured sentiment of the sailor, who, fully conscious of all the danger, yet never by a word or gesture, showed that he was flurried or excited. You've been out on nights as bad as this, I suppose, said Harcourt. Maybe not quite, sir, for it's a great say is running, and, with the wind offshore, we couldn't have this, if there wasn't a storm blowing further out. From the westward, you mean? Yes, sir, a wind coming over the whole ocean, that will soon meet the land wind. And does that happen often? The words were but out, when with a loud report like a cannon shot, the wind reversed the sail, snapping the strong sprit in two, and bringing down the whole canvas clattering into the boat. With the aid of a hatchet, the sailor struck off the broken portion of the spar, and soon cleared the wreck, while the boat, now reduced to a mere foresail, labored heavily, sinking her prow in the sea at every bound. Her course, too, was now altered, and she flew along parallel to the shore, the great cliffs looming through the darkness and seeming as if close to them. "'The boy! The boy!' cried Harcourt. "'What has become of him? He never should have lived through that squall.' If the spar stood, it was an end of us, too, said the sailor. It is all over by this time, muttered Harcourt sorrowfully. Pace to him now, said the sailor, as he crossed himself and went over a prayer. The wind now raged fearfully. Claps, like the report of cannon, struck the frail boat at intervals, and laid her nearly keel uppermost, while the mast bent like a whip, and every rope creaked and strained to its last endurance. The deafening noise close at hand told where the waves were beating on the rock-bound coast, or surging with a deep growl of thunder through many a cavern. They rarely spoke, save when some emergency called for a word. Each sat wrapped up in his own dark reveries, and unwilling to break them. Hours passed thus, long, dreary hours of darkness that seemed like years of suffering. So often in this interval did life hang in the balance. As morning began to break with a grayish-blue light to the westward, the wind slightly abated, blowing more steadily, too, and less in sudden gusts, while the sea rolled in large round waves, unbroken above, and showing no crest of foam. "'Do you know where we are?' asked Harcourt. "'Yes, sir. We're off the Rook's Point, and if we hold on well, we'll soon be in slacker water.' "'Could the boy have reached this, think you?' The man shook his head mournfully, without speaking. How far are we from Glencore? About eighteen miles, sir, but more by land. You can put me ashore, then, somewhere hereabouts. Yes, sir, in the next bay, 
there's a creek we can easily run into. You are quite sure he couldn't have been blown out to sea? How could he, sir? There's only one way the wind could drive him. If he isn't in the clock bay, he's in glory. All the anxiety of that dreary night was nothing to what Harcourt now suffered in his eagerness to round the rook's point and look in the bay beyond it. Controlling it as he would, still would it break out in words of impatience and even anger. Don't curse the boat, Your Honor, said Peter respectfully but calmly. She's behaved well to us this night, or we'd not be here now. But are we to beat about here forever? asked the other angrily. She's doing well, and we ought to be thankful, said the man and his tone, even more than his words, served to reprove the other's impatience. I'll try and set the mainsail on her with the remains of the sprit. Harcourt watched him as he labored away to repair the damaged rigging, but though he looked at him, his thoughts were far away, with poor Glencore upon his sickbed, in sorrow and in suffering, and perhaps soon to hear that he was childless. From these he went to other thoughts. What could have occurred to have driven the boy to such an act of desperation? Harcourt invented a hundred imaginary causes to reject them as rapidly again. The affection the boy bore to his father seemed the strongest principle of his nature. There appeared to be no event possible in which that feeling would not sway and control him. As he thus ruminated, he was aroused by the sudden cry of the boatman. There's a boat, sir, dismasted, ahead of us, and drifting out to say. I see her, I see her, cried Harcourt. Out with the oars, and let's pull for her. Heavily as the sea was rolling, they now began to pull through the immense waves, Harcourt turning his head at every instant to watch the boat, which now was scarcely half a mile ahead of them. "'She's empty. There's no one in her,' said Peter mournfully, as steadying himself by the mast, he cast a look seaward. "'Row on. Let us get beside her,' said Harcourt. "'She's the yawl. I know her now,' cried the man. "'And empty?' "'Washed out of her with a say, belike,' said Peter, resuming his oar, and tugging with all his strength. A quarter of an hour's hard rowing brought them close to the dismasted boat, which, drifting broadside on the sea, seemed at every instance ready to capsize. "'There's something in the bottom, in the stern-sheet,' screamed Peter. "'It's himself! Oh, blessed virgin, it's himself!' And with a bound he sprang from his own boat into the other. The next instant... He had lifted the helpless body of the boy from the bottom of the boat, and with a shout of joy screamed out, He's alive! He's well! It's only fatigue! Harcourt pressed his hands to his face and sank upon his knees in prayer. End of chapter 12 Recording by The Grumpy Old Squid of Tidewater, Virginia